You probably remember, but I'm going to remind you anyway, that so far in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has discussed the resurrection under six heads. And uh, here they are. I'll just list them quickly. I'm not going to reread them all. He discussed the resurrection evangelistically because he insists that the gospel includes the resurrection. You don't have gospel if you don't have good news, if you don't have resurrection, if you don't have eternal life. So he discusses the, the resurrection first evangelistically, then he discussed it historically, then he discussed it logically, then he discussed it theologically, then he discussed it personally in terms of the impact of the resurrection upon how he was living his life. And then last week, I hope that I was able to make the point that Paul was there discussing the resurrection on a scientific level. How can there be a resurrection? What are we talking about? With what kind of body will we come in the resurrection? Today, Paul is discussing the resurrection triumphantly. I could have said victoriously. Uh, There are other words perhaps we could have chosen, but he is discussing the triumph of the resurrection and perhaps the theme verse of this whole passage is verse 54, the latter, the third part of that verse. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. By the way, the Greek word victory, anybody know what the Greek word for victory is? So yeah, Nike, exactly. It's been in the news lately. Not so victorious perhaps, but, uh, but that is the Greek word for victory, Nike. And, uh, and some of you probably have some shoes with a swoosh on, and you didn't know you had victorious shoes on, but you do. All right. The resurrection of Christ is not merely a doctrine or a teaching to be discussed. It is our glorious hope. It's a promise to which we can cling no matter what circumstances life may bring. The hope of resurrection is the motivation for sacrificial service. It's a comfort in which godly people can rest when they lay a loved one in the grave. And it's the wellspring of courage when death is staring you in the face. Now we know that sooner or later death comes to us all, but I want you to know that somehow what really triggered in my mind as I was studying this passage this week is the idea of evil men threatening God's people with death. Don't ever tell yourself that you won't have to die for your faith because you may. Right here in Canada, there may come a day when Christians have to take such a stand that they risk life itself if they're going to continue to confess Christ. Don't forget that Christians are dying for their faith all over the world, even as we're meeting here this morning. Think about those 20 Egyptian Christians and the one Ghanaian. There were 21 men in all who were beheaded in Libya back in 2015. I think it was February. It was the winter of 2015. Now here's what Archbishop Angelos, uh, uh, Angelos, the Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London, said about them. 20 of these men were Coptic Christians. I, I think that's worth noting. The, the last one was from Ghana, and I would assume that probably means he was some kind of evangelical Christian, though I do not know which kind of Christian he was. But 21 men um, uh, beheaded together because of their faith. Listen to what the Archbishop, the Coptic Archbishop of London said. While this public spectacle was intended to humiliate our brothers in Libya and intimidate their families, their church, and Christians around the world, it actually became an opportunity for an incredibly valiant witness by those who accepted their deaths so bravely while calling on their Lord and Savior to their last breath. I understand that they were repeating, Jesus, help me. In each case, Jesus, help me. Not only were their actions courageous, 
But their families subsequently presented a gracious message of Christian love and forgiveness amidst their personal grieving and loss that moved the world. God help us. I mean you and me. God help us to live in such a way that we can die like those men. And may God forgive us for thinking this could never happen to me. I love Paul's language in Titus 2.13 where he speaks of our Lord's glorious appearing as a blessed hope. And surely it is. But just as surely, his coming has not yet happened. And we and our children may yet live long enough to experience the privilege of dying for our faith in Christ. May we not fail the test if or when it comes to us. Let me tell you something. One of the reasons why I'm kind of making a deal about this is because I grew up under the influence of a great godly man, probably as fine a preacher as I've ever heard. Uh, he had uh, his influence. I wasn't there directly. He was pastor of a large church in a large city in the United States, and he had a national radio ministry, and I think for a while even a, a television ministry. And he was an extremely good pastor, as good as I've ever heard, extremely, extremely good preacher, as good as I've ever heard. But he did have what in my mind, even back then, I began to fear was a shortcoming in his theology. And that is, he kept reminding people of the rapture, and he kept saying, you won't have to suffer. We won't have to suffer. Suffer. God has not appointed us to wrath. The rapture is going to take us out of all this before we have to suffer. I think he was sadly mistaken on two grounds. One of them is, and here I'll just share with you something that I really, I don't know if I've said this much from the pulpit, but I have shared this with individuals, and I'm feeling a little free to be open about, about things nowadays. Um, <laughs> this is not a bad thing at all. But, but one of the things that I have sought to do is to, to preach in such a way that if I were magically transported to a secret uh, congregation meeting, say, in Iran or in China somewhere, that I wouldn't even have to miss a beat, that I could continue preaching the same sermon in front of Chinese who are suffering for their faith, Iranians who are suffering for their faith, anybody who's suffering for his faith, that I could preach the same message in front of them that I'm preaching in front of a Canadian congregation. Does that make sense to you? I hope it does. Because sometimes when a man gets in the pulpit and he starts saying, well, if you just believe hard enough, you'll become a millionaire. If you just believe hard enough, you'll never get sick. If you just believe hard enough, and on and on it goes... That kind of message is just not going to fly in certain parts of the world. I want my preaching to, to fly everywhere in the world, and not only that, but most especially in front of Jesus. And I'm just saying we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. We need to be careful that we don't promise ourselves things that God has not promised, and he has not promised that any of us won't have to suffer. In fact, he has promised that there will be persecution in this world, in this life. So let me say it again. There's no victory like Christ's victory over sin and death. There's no hope like the hope that Jesus gives to those who believe in him. But that means you need to be sure that you believe. You need to be sure that you have that hope. Are you born again? Are you in Christ? Isn't that the secret to everything that we're talking about this morning? That we believe in Jesus in such a way that we are in him and he is in us. And by his spirit, we have the assurance that we know him. Now that brings us to today's text. So let me begin in verse 50 then and read to you down through the end of the chapter. Paul says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery 
we will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. In other words, who wants to go and stand before a holy God still covered in sin, still with your robes all spotted with black, the blackness of disobedience and, and sin of every sort? And, and of course that would be then the sting of death because the power of sin being the law uh, the law says thou shalt not, and we've done it every time. Whatever it is, we've done it, if not in our hearts, in actual life. And so the, st- the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ or in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important, important, it's crucial that you know that you are in Christ. And now the wonderful therefore, verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers, Because of the resurrection, because in Christ we are perfectly righteous, because in Christ we're going to receive a resurrection body, a newly created body that is like His from heaven itself. Because of all these things, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You will be rewarded for serving Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. Now, I want to talk to you briefly about the title of the message. You'll recall, For Disciples, Resurrection is the Reward. For Disciples, Resurrection is the Reward. I want you to think of that title this way. Everything we do, or almost everything that we do, has some sort of reward at the end. For example, if we decide that we want to eat, there are at least three rewards for eating. There's the delicious flavor of the food, that's a reward. And then there's the quenching of hunger pangs, that's a reward. And finally, there's the sustenance of the body, that too is a reward. But we don't generally break it down. We probably just will say something like, I need to eat. And then later we'll say, I'm glad we got to eat. And, and, and we have been rewarded because we have eaten without necessarily listing all the reasons. So for the body, eating is the reward. In the same way, those who live for Jesus. Do you understand those who believe in Jesus live for Jesus? Those who live for Jesus believe in Jesus? It's commutative. It works either way. And, and, it, and you can't separate the two. You just cannot. So those who live for Jesus... Look to the resurrection as the moment we realize everything that is implied in our faith in Christ. Resurrection is is the reward for faith in Jesus. We contribute nothing to our resurrection. We do not earn eternal life, nor do we in any way grow new bodies for ourselves. We simply believe and receive. Resurrection is the reward for our faith. Now we can break that reward down into a number of, of constituent parts. But it's through the resurrection in Christ that we receive it all. So I do want to break it down for just a few minutes here, if I may. 
And the first thing I want to say about the constituent parts of the resurrection, these things that will be our reward when the resurrection takes place. The first one is this, alive or dead, at the resurrection, all who are in Christ will be changed. The first thing we hope for in the resurrection is change, transformation. I'm going to probably sound like I'm you know, talking too long about a, a rather minor point, but let me do it because I hope it will, you'll see why it's, why it's important in just a moment. But the first thing is this. Our transformation, according to verse 52, will be instantaneous. It will occur in a moment. The Greek word there is the same word that they use for atom, the smallest thing they could imagine or imagine could exist. You might even think of in a moment as in a nanosecond, a billionth of a second. In the blink of an eye, again, the Greek word is also the one that's used for a single beat of music or a single flap of a bird's wing, a, a moment. So our transformation will be instantaneous. Our transformation will be complete. That is, it will result in us becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. And I'm looking at verses 52 and 53. But let me just remind you of what Paul has already written back in verse 49 of the same chapter, where he says, And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust. Now he's talking about Adam. Remember what it says in Genesis 5, Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. If we want to know something about how we're made in the image of God, the same word is used when Adam has a son in his own image and likeness. And so Adam is a man from the earth, from the dust of the earth. His son, his daughters, his children, all of us, we are of the earth. We are children of Adam and we bear the image of Adam. But just as we, Paul goes on to say, just as we bear the image of the man of dust, or the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man, that is Jesus, the man from heaven. Have you thought about it? No matter how born again you may be, and I, I love the fact that I feel confident that a huge percentage, if not, you know, 99%, I don't know, but a lot of us are born again. Praise God, we're born again in this congregation. We've received a new heart. We receive the Spirit of God and we have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ already. The problem is, all that's in the heart. As far as the body is concerned, we still are in the image of Adam. You have to understand that. And that's why people can get away with false professions. Because the outside doesn't change instantaneously. The inside changes over a period of time. Behavior sort of proves what we really are. But we continue to look like a son of Adam. The best among us look like Adam. The worst among us look like Adam. And it's hard to tell the difference. But tomorrow, and I hope you see this, tomorrow we're going to look like Jesus. And then the difference will be extreme extraordinary. It'll be obvious. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So the transformation will be complete. It will result in us becoming a new creation in Christ. This is the moment then when our physical bodies will be transformed to match the transformation of our souls in the new birth. Again, I can't belabor this point, but last week I talked at some length about the fact that right now our physical bodies always hinder our spiritual lives, but that someday we'll have new created bodies in Christ Jesus that will completely agree with the highest desires of our hearts and help us to serve the Lord. So, now I want to talk to you about the combination of this new creation and the speed of the new creation. In a moment, a nanosecond, in the beat of a bird's wing or the beat of a single beat of music, the transformation will take place. So I think that the speed of our transformation tells us something about God's creation power. 
the speed and the, and the complete nature of our transformation tells us something about God's creation power. You see, in the creation of our new bodies, God's work is presented as effortless and instantaneous. Keep both words in your mind. In fact, the Bible makes the case that all of God's creative work is both effortless and instantaneous. Look at Psalm 33, verse 6. I thought for a moment Steve Gold was going to read that verse, but he read a different one, and I'm glad, but they're in perfect harmony with what, uh, what you read earlier, Steve. But here's Psalm 33, 6. The heavens were made by the Lord's word, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. The exhalation of his mouth. It actually takes a little effort to inhale. We can work at that one, especially if you're taking a really deep breath. You put some real effort into it. But exhale, it's easy. All you do is relax. And so the stars were created in a relaxed effort of God's. Remember what we said is creation work is always effortless and instantaneous. The stars were made by the breath of his mouth. And then skipping down to verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all who live in the world stand in awe of him. He spoke, and it, that is the created universe, came into being. And I'm reading from the God's Word translation, although actually most of the translations indicate the same thing. I just like the way it said it here. He spoke and it came into being. He gave the order, and there it stood. To quote from an old uh, uh, soul uh, piece of, of music, whomp, there it is. You know, so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, here we are. He spoke, and there it stood. Now, again, maybe I'm revealing more of myself than I might if I was going to try to stay here another five years, but let me ask you a question. If it's easy to believe in the instantaneous nature of the new creation, haven't we seen that this morning? In a moment, a nanosecond, in the beat of one single beat of music, if we find it easy to believe in the instantaneous nature of the new creation... Why is it such a temptation to believe that God requires billions of years to create the first heaven and the first earth? Especially, as we've just seen from Psalm 33, God's word makes the instantaneous nature of the new creation abundantly clear. Now, I hear people get bogged down in discussion about Genesis 1. Now, do we really mean six 24-hour days? Are we talking about eons of time that are divided into six periods from God's perspective or whatever, whatever the discussion may be? But the bottom line is the book of Psalms, which is just as inspired as Genesis 1, and the New Testament as well, all affirm the instantaneous, effortless nature of the first creation. We've just seen it in Psalm 33. Now, you might well ask why the speed of creation should be an issue. I'm going to tell you. It seems to me that if this is what the Bible teaches, and no persuasive case for any other position has ever been made, I can assure you I've read them. They're not persuasive, and especially when people start trying to look at the original language and so forth, it becomes most arguments, all arguments that I'm aware of become instantly unpersuadable, uh, unpersuasive. So if uh, the Bible, uh, if this is what the Bible teaches, then It seems to me that the very glory of God is at stake when men say otherwise. And it also seems to me that God's people ought to have a zeal for the glory of God. 
So I want you to listen to the claims that God makes of himself in his word. See, part of the problem with instantaneous universe creation is that our human minds boggle at the thought. We know how long it takes to build a house. We know how long it takes to do any kind of large project here on earth with our limited resources, our limited strength. And it's hard for us to get our heads around the idea of the infinitude of God, the infinite nature of God. So I just want to lay before you then a number of scriptures. This isn't even all of them, but here are the ones that emphasize God's miraculous power. So the first one is a question that God asks Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, mathematically speaking, if you have a set that includes anything, then what's left out? (laughs) Nothing. No thing. Yeah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or Numbers 11.23. I'm so tempted to give you the context for each one, but let's don't. Numbers 11.23. The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? These are rhetorical questions that demand a certain kind of answer, don't they? And the answer to both of these is no. And then Jeremiah 32.17. Oh, Lord God, you yourself. Isn't it fascinating that God's creative power comes into this issue here? You yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And again, if you have a mathematical set that includes nothing, then everything outside, yeah, whatever. I, you, you, heard, you know where I'm going. Jeremiah 32, 27. Look, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Again, the answer demanded is no. And then, of course, Jesus speaking in Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this, that is the salvation of the wealthy, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And finally, Luke 1.37, when Mary has just asked the angel, I, you know, how am I going to have a baby? I, I haven't known a man. I have no man to know. How's this going to happen? The angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. So, God's people go to church and they say amen when the scripture affirms that nothing is too hard for the Lord. But then they leave the church and say, under their breath, except for creating the universe and the world in six days, that would be too hard. I think there's something wrong with this picture. Again, let me emphasize the point is that the Bible affirms the instantaneous resurrection of the new creation using much the same language as it uses for the first creation. So the first step to being like Jesus is to affirm Jesus' total confidence in the word of God and accept what it says, or so it seems to me. So, The next point in the agenda here from verse 54 is that our transformation will be radical, not just from death to life. Again, don't get in your head the idea of Lazarus coming out of the grave, but rather a change from a kind of life that is always dying to a kind of life that is unable to die. It will also include a change in appearance and strength comparable to when an acorn becomes a mighty oak tree, as I discussed with you Last week in such a strange Texas accent, I, I think I was guilty of saying acorn two or three times, and I understand the Canadian word is acorn, but uh, we'll, I can say it both ways. I'm bilingual. I, and, and, uh, <laughs> so there you go. And then, of course, the corruptible flesh that we endure today will be replaced by a new kind of incorruptible flesh. And then our transformation will be glorious. And we're going to take, this is the last thing, we're just going to take a few minutes on this and we'll be done. Our 
transformation will be glorious. And I want to enlarge, if I may, on a theme that I, I mentioned last week, but we're going to develop it further today. So think about our transformation being glorious in this way. We'll start with Jesus as he ascended from the Mount of Olives. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, you see it on the screen behind me. It says that after Jesus had said this, what had he just said? He had just given them the great uh, commission. He had just said, you shall be witnesses to me after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. He had given them the great commission. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And, and the Greek language there indicates that he was borne up by the cloud. Now, as I say, I referred to this last week. I hope you remember that I pointed out then that it is almost certainly incorrect to think of Jesus sort of disappearing into a, white, a fluffy white cumulus cloud, much as an airplane might do. Some of you have had the privilege of being in an airplane and flying in and through a cloud, or you've stood on the ground and watched an airplane disappear as it flew into a cumulus cloud, a white fluffy cloud. But this is not what happened for Jesus. Instead, as he rose from the earth, he was suddenly lit with the glory of God. The transformation that began at his resurrection was completed in that moment, and the disciples saw it. He was lit with the glory of God. He disappeared from sight in a cloud of glory. We need to keep that in our minds. A bright outshining that blinded the eyes of the watching disciples. Now, last week, I suggested to you this might be a possible way. I speculated that this was a possible way of interpreting what happened in our Lord's ascension. But today, I am able to prove it to you biblically. Look at 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says there, And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And the scholars tell us that this phrase is a reference to his ascension. He was taken up in glory. The glory cloud surrounded him and bore him up into heaven. And of course, we see the end of that journey described for us, funnily enough, back in Daniel chapter 7, where riding on that same cloud of glory, Jesus arrives in the throne room of heaven. But we won't get into that right now. What I want to say now is that this glory that enveloped our Lord and supported him as he ascended into heaven, this glory will be ours in the resurrection. That's what I want you to know. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. And God help us to be in the first group and not in the second. Then verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so that's the glory of the resurrection. And it's nailed down for us in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 3. Forgive me, but I just have to give it a little context. So we'll start in verse 20. Paul says, as he writes to the Christians at Philippi, Our homeland is in heaven, where our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. And we are looking forward to his return from there. Now you might notice I'm reading from the Living Bible. I still love many of the passages of the Living Bible. The New Living Bible is great, but the Living Bible, I think, got a bum rap for many years. It may 
may not be the most scholarly work, but it has some extraordinarily beautiful passages. Again, I could defend this same truth from the Hallman Christian Standard Bible, the ESV, the RSV, the, you know, whatever it may be, but the KJV, but, but nevertheless, I just love it. So verse 21, when he comes back, that is Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Glorious bodies. You can't have a glorious body unless there's glory shining from it. Do you understand what we're talking about? We're not just talking about looking like we're 25 years old for forever and forever. That would be, you know, for, as I said last week, that'd be great. That'd be a lot better than, you know, I, some of us, I said last week, we'd settle for just, you know, looking 40 for the rest of eternity. But, uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, when he comes back, he will take these dying bodies of ours, change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer all else everywhere. And of course, that's the very language that Paul has been using in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I actually, I said last, but we have to see one other aspect of this. The change will be necessary. This instantaneous, effortless change, this new creation that, that will be ours at the resurrection is necessary. At the resurrection... The new creation will be released from the bondage of decay. I wish we had time to explicate Romans chapter 8 and all of this, but the new creation will be released from the bondage of decay. In other words, entropy, the dissolution of everything, the, 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 the everything dissolving down toward chaos. Entropy will apparently cease to be a thing in the new resurrection. And if the new creation is free from decay, it can only be appropriate. Follow the logic here. It can only be appropriate that the inhabitants be just as free of decay and death. But I want you especially to notice the symbolism of clothing in verse 53. We need to be clothed in new heavenly bodies because we're going, you may recall, we're actually going to a wedding. So we need to be dressed up in clothing that fits. But again, I want, before we're done here, I want you to understand that we're not talking about uh, material. We're not talking about wool. We're not talking about synthetics. We're not talking about any of these things. We're talking about something far more important than clothing, and it relates to the whole thing about the glory of of the new creation. So follow with me here. We need to be clothed in new heavenly bodies because we're going to a wedding. And I want you to hear how Jesus finishes his parable of the wedding banquet. Now this comes from Matthew 22. You'll remember the story the king provides uh, for a great wedding banquet for his son. Uh, Obviously, the king is God the Father. His son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all the wealthy and noble people who are invited to the wedding for one reason or another refuse to come. And so then he orders his, the king orders his soldiers to go out into the highways, into the byways, go to the crossroads, go wherever you can find people sitting around, standing around, walking along, whatever they're doing, you just grab them up and you bring them to the banquet. They're all welcome at my banquet. But at the end of the story, Jesus includes something really, really fascinating. When the king came in to view the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. Now, I'm reading right out of the text, HCSB text, but you could have added the word not dressed for a heavenly wedding. That's important. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless, and he was thrown into outer darkness, into hell, which again, tells us that Jesus isn't talking about mere clothing. It's not that he forgot his cummerbund or, you know, that he forgot a tie, no shirt, no shoes, no services. It's got nothing to do with that. 
He was not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He did not have a glorious resurrection body. And you say, now, Pastor, you're reading a lot into that. All right, stay with me just a couple minutes more. The Hebrews regarded holiness as the garment of the soul. And they often compared a sinful soul to a spotted, dirty garment. Do you understand then that much of what we read about white garments in the Bible, and especially as we move toward the end of the book, but starting in the Gospels and getting even more frequent as we move toward the end of the Bible, what we read about garments, white garments, in Revelation and elsewhere, is actually a reference to our righteousness in Christ. It is a reference to the whiteness of the glory that shone from Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and that will shine from every believer. We've already read it. The righteous will shine like the brightness of the horizon and like the stars of the sky and so forth. It's a reference to this glory that comes from our souls being made righteous in Christ. So, for example, just to give you one example, And I'm going to close with this. Where Jesus, writing to the church at Sardis, he says in Revelation 3, verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white. You could say, not because the word says it, but because this is what it means, they will walk with me in glory. There will be a bright outshining from them a glory that shines from them just as it shines from Jesus because they are worthy. In themselves, no, but in Christ they are worthy. I love how one commentator puts it in regard to this very verse. Chapter 3, verse 4 of Revelation. They shall be raised to a state of eternal glory and shall be forever with their Lord. When this dawned on me that this is what's being taught, in 1 Corinthians 15, in Revelation 3, and many other parts of Revelation, many other parts of the New Testament, suddenly an old hymn that's always been something I've loved became a favorite of mine in a brand new way, a fresh new way. Almeida Pierce wrote this hymn probably almost 100 years ago now. It's called, When He Shall Come. But the last verse says, When He Shall Call from Earth's Remotest Corners. All who have stood triumphant in His might. Oh, to be worthy then to stand beside them and in that morn to walk with him in white, in glory. And isn't this really what Paul has in mind in the last verse of today's text, verse 58? You thought I wasn't going to finish the text. We're done right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Is that the goal of your life, to excel in the Lord's work? To excel in everything else but the Lord's work? Isn't that all too often the temptation that strikes us? But be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is a resurrection coming, and you will be rewarded. And every sacrifice will be repaid an infinite amount of times. Every sacrifice made now will be repaid in glory. And through glory.